This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans. Uh, so this week I'm back chatting to Hagar Shamali. Uh, we're covering off everything that's going on in the world at the moment, which is a lot. So we talk about Boris Johnson's no confidence vote and whether or not Bojo's buggered. Talk about whether or not we should care about hurting Putin's feelings with his ongoing invasion of Ukraine. The investigation into the US insurrection at the Capitol on January 6. Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and what's doing with that. And also the politics of gun control uh, and abortion rights relating to the Roe v. Wade case and the upcoming decision which is likely to drop this week or next. So, a lot that we cover off this episode, slightly longer than usual, but it's a fantastic chat with Hagar. Now, since we recorded this, uh, there's been an announcement of a prospective deal in the Senate. Uh, you know, it does a little bit around gun control. It's not everything that you would need to do to solve the problem, but certainly a step in the right direction. So do check that out and keeping a close eye on that. Uh, thank you to everyone that listened to the last episode that we did with Cos uh, Samaras with the election update out of Australia. Thanks to everyone who supported the show. Got us to six overall in our category in Australia, which is a obviously a huge achievement. So thank you for supporting the show. If you're new to the show, please like, rate, review us um, on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help spread the word. So without further gibbering from me, enjoy the episode. All right, Hagar, welcome back for our Chinwag episode. How are you? I am great. I'm great now. It feels like there have been 400 news cycles since our last episode. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I was reflecting as I was putting the list together and I was like, look, you know, but also some ground rules here. A lot of people have been listening to our episodes and uh, telling me how much they're enjoying you as a co-host. And you're not allowed to outshine me because this is my podcast, right? So just uh, <laughs> <laughs> Leave the witty insights and jokes to me, please. But otherwise, no, look. Um, Noted. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, right. So we're going to start somewhere that I think you're going to enjoy because we're going to talk about one of your favourite people to impersonate, Boris Johnson. Uh, now, Boris is under some hot water uh, in the United Kingdom. Of course, he's been uh, you know, taking a lot of criticism um, from his leadership, particularly around the so-called party gate, having these uh, COVID parties where everyone else was locked down, which has now culminated in a no-confidence vote. 359 MPs in his party room, 148 said they did not have confidence in his leadership. So he survived, you know, 60-40, says it's a great result. Uh, on a scale of one to, uh, you know, bugged, how much trouble is Boris Johnson in, do you think? I'd say quite a bit. What do you reckon? Do you believe oh. Bojo? You know, I think Bojo is on an interesting spectrum because I think that he's close to, was it one that's buggered, you said? <laughs> no, well, 10's buggered. 10's buggered. Okay. So I'm going to put him at like a 6-7. But he puts himself at like 2. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting to watch because that's so Bojo, right? He's just like, let's keep calm and carry on. And I don't know this time. I don't know how long he'll be able to carry on for. Well, I actually think he's more like a nine um, because I think 148, once you've got a number on the page, you know that you're they're only 32 away, right? So you won by 63. You've only got to turn 32 votes. And those 148, I'm going to say, oh, well, that's that then. Um, and, you know, 
The other thing too is generally, you know, and unfortunately as an Australian, we know quite a bit about leadership challenges, but United Kingdom is good, you know, look at Theresa May, the person that Boris Johnson knocked off, right? Uh, you know, once you're relying on process, so it's like, oh, you're not going to have a ballot for a year under the party rules. Well, she only lasted six months because they said we're going to change the rules if you don't go, right? And I think Johnson's heading to similar territory. And it's really just about polling, right? I mean, it's not about his behaviour. His behaviour's been terrible the whole way through. It was terrible before he got the job, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's the fact is now he's an electoral liability. You know, Keir Starmer's well ahead now and preferred Prime Minister and the Labor Party's significantly outpolling the Tory party. I think he's cooked, but we'll see. Um, you know, you know what's he interesting as an American, what's interesting is that... Um, oh, let's, sorry. Hello. <laughs> Redo that. We can edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the story of my life. If you don't edit this out, this is the story of my life, working from home with three children, <laughs> the youngest being under two. So <laughs> that has that has happened to me on TV once and now podcasting once. <laughs> um, the, as an American, sure. yeah, I know, right? Um, so I can tell you, as an American, the perspective, it's so interesting because his own party called for the no confidence vote, something that would never happen here today in the divisive politics we have in the United States. But all, but that says a lot because as an as an American that has become unfortunately used to a certain level of drama and and unethical behavior on the part of our leadership. To me, it would it would I would be surprised for a leader to be removed for this reason here. But. The thing that is so fascinating that I think you're right may push him more towards a nine and maybe I'm a six because of the U.S. perspective is that it was his own party that called for the no confidence vote. About a third, I believe, voted against him. And, uh, and yes. And the fact is that they're upset with other things. They're upset with the fact that he has no long term sustainable strategy for the U.K. economy. They're upset with the post Brexit lack of vision. They're upset with how he handled the immigration issue when he sent undocumented immigrants to Rwanda, these types of things that are catching up with him now. So um, the last thing I'll say about it to be quick is that British politics, as again, as an American, the thing that always surprises me is how quickly or just the fact that prime ministers resign at all and move. And I think it's a sign of a healthy democracy. Good for them. And so he may end up because of that tradition and practice that's happened before. Maybe may, that's how I could see him resign. But in the moment, I think his heads are his head is in the clouds. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be interesting. But I think it, it's got a sting when 148 people that work most closely with you say that there's not even a preferred candidate. We just don't think you're up to the job. And so I. It, I just think he's he's got he's close to curtains, and I don't think he's capable um, of governing his way out. You know, steady governance is what's required. It just doesn't seem something that Boris Johnson's capable. Of, but we shall see. Still, yeah. I think that we don't retire that wig just yet. Uh, the Bojo wig on your show, like I think you're going to need it. Now, <laughs> switching to something where Johnson's actually done a reasonable enough job. This is my clunky segue, but Ukraine. Uh, we've just passed a hundred days mark. It's the yeah, people talking about a grinding phase of the war, which you know I don't really like because it's basically a euphemism for a lot of people dying in a concentrated area. Uh, you know, Zelensky just said that 100 to 200 Ukrainian soldiers are dying every day. Russian losses are probably about as high, if not higher. A huge battle underway, basically in the eastern part of uh, of the country, the Donbass, where Siveron-Donetsk, um, in the Luhansk region, huge, basically street-to-street -street fighting going on there. Um, and, you know, the the... 
Russians are desperate to take it because it's a bit of a keystone city to the Donbass region. But on the flip side, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are fighting fiercely. So it's sort of basically not really moving a great deal of front. What, what interests me, though, was actually reports coming out of the south where the Russians are trying to put in place essentially the pillars of a Russian state. They're putting in place rubles by exchange. They've got, uh, you know, basically Russian government type, uh, you know, structures. They're trying to get the trains running again. Um, so they're kind of trying to sort of consolidate their gains, as it were, and sort of russify the parts of Ukraine that they're occupying. And, you know, they occupy about 20% of Ukraine's uh, sovereign territory. So it's a huge landmass. You know, it's about the size of Italy and some other, you know, other European countries. But said a lot there. But the bit I want your opinion on is my mate Macron, um, who, you know, I, whilst I would still, had I been French, I would have voted for him over Le Pen. I just Some of the things he comes up with. So he said, well, we don't want to humiliate uh, Vladimir Putin. And so it's important for the Ukrainians basically to agree to some form of peace deal that doesn't humiliate Vlad because, you know, we don't want the war spilling out. And, you know, the theory being a humiliated Vladimir Putin uh, somehow more dangerous than the one that they were afraid to humiliate leading into this, who was just just as dangerous. Um, and I, I, as a strategy, I don't understand. It. And frankly, the only person who's humiliated Vladimir Putin is Vladimir Putin. He's the one that's dropped his pants on the world stage with a terrible military strategy. However, back to you. How do you see this call from European leaders like Macron, uh, like the Germans, saying, "Well, you know, we don't want to upset or humiliate Putin. We've got to give him an off ramp." What does that look like in your view? Oh my God, I don't have the tolerance for it, really, because this is this is not. I, and I like to joke on my show a lot. I call a lot of these leaders toddlers, and they, and he does, without a doubt. Putin acts like a toddler with nuclear weapons, but but also it's not an excuse. I'm not. We're not ready. It's to give an excuse. This is not an idiot, and I don't care what he's going through personally. I don't care if he is erratic and and mentally not there. He doesn't get an out. It doesn't work like that. That doesn't mean I'm afraid of diplomatic negotiations, by the way. Diplomatic negotiations are what end wars. Right. And, and so I 100% believe we should be doing everything to prepare for the most successful diplomatic negotiations, which is why I think intense military aid is critical because it positions Zelensky in the best in the best position of strength that he could be in because, and it backs Russia into this corner. Right. But, but to say the way Macron said his statement, he, he said, and he actually said this, that he wanted to not right to not point out to Putin that we shouldn't be pointing out to him the grave mistake he made. And, you know, like, again, as though we're dealing with a toddler and we're dealing with the toddler with hand gloves and <laughs> right. Almost like the way the way um, millennials have been raised, right? They, everybody wins. Ah. There's no loser. It's going to be fine. You didn't make a mistake. There is no such word as failing. No, <laughs> this is, this is the big league. This is not how it works. And so I don't think that, I think you can pursue diplomatic negotiations that are difficult and, and you can humiliate Putin. I, I don't see why you need to separate the two or why we need to treat him like, like a baby. That yeah, is I, that's absurd. I, I agree. But also, I think one of the traps for the West has been Putin has changed a bit of the strategic calculus here, which we've never had a situation in the past, certainly not in the Cold War and certainly not really previously with the Russians, where nuclear responses are on the table to conventional warfare, right? So at no point, say, for example, 
when uh, uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, at no point did they say, listen, if you help out the Afghanis fighting us, like by proxies, which they did, we're going to launch a nuke on you. Now, Putin is saying this, and people are taking that threat seriously. Now, I understand because it's a serious, yeah, it's a, whether it's a serious threat, it's a troubling threat. But if Putin actually thinks, well, listen, I'm just going to act so unpredictably and so wildly and threaten my nukes, basically, if you say something bad about me on Twitter, then you're really limiting our ability to respond. And I think, you know, you've seen reports in about you know, Biden administration sort of debating internally about, well, do we give these long-range missiles and all these sorts of discussion points about, oh, well, you know, we want to be careful about, you know, upsetting Vlad um, because these are red lines. Well, you know, I, I think you, we actually, the best way to end the war is to give the Ukrainians the best negotiating position, right? And so if Putin thinks he's prevailed, he's bluffed the West and that he's sort of grabbed enough that he can take a breath and, you know, that would be that. Well, it wasn't enough when he took Crimea in 2014 and started a separatist war in Donbass, right? So the idea that dictators um, take a nibble and decide that that's enough doesn't really sort of hold water, certainly not in Putin's example, generally, historically. So, uh, you know, I just think this whole thing about Putin's psychology, we should study it, sure, but this humiliation question, I, you know, I just don't understand what the purpose of it is, frankly. Right. What you try to achieve. Yeah. And I think that dictator psychology is a thing. Right. And we definitely saw it. You know, I, I, I saw it firsthand when I handled Syria um, at the beginning of the crisis. And there were just there were things that seemed very rational to democratic states that just aren't the same way dictators calculate things. And it's why at the beginning of the war, one of the things I always kept saying was that these are this is a leader who will bulldoze an entire country if he can, if it means he can maintain power. It doesn't matter. There's not a bone in them that cares about civilian life or that cares about breaking U.N. rules or the threat of the ICC, um, the International Criminal Court or anything like that. And so in that respect, dictator psychology is good to know for how we react on the other end, how the defender reacts, how we should help the defender and what we should expect, um, but not to coddle them. This is that's crazy. Right. Um, but I do think, you know, the thing that one thing that does uh, concern me and Zelensky said this as well, is that he can, he said stalemate is not an option. Right. And he's right for two reasons. One, because it's only worse on the Ukrainian end to suffer the atrocities and torture and shelling that that the Russians will continue to do. And they won't stop, like you just said. Well, once they seize one, the, the city that they're that they're bombarding now, I'm not going to pronounce it very well, so I won't say it's in the Donbass. There you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> that once the, once hopefully they won't seize it, but if they do, they'll move on to the next. Right. Um, and uh, and secondly, countries around the world are not going to give the high level military aid that they're giving to Ukraine forever. So we need to buckle down and. I agree with Macron on the need for diplomatic negotiations, but not by by being afraid to say the truth or by walking on eggshells. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, totally. And I, I think you're right. I mean, we need a, a resolution, clearly, and it'll have to be diplomacy at some point. But yeah, cutting the Ukrainian legs from underneath them um, in the interests of the Russian you know, state, Putin there is just madness. Anyway, so switching gears to another dictator uh, that uh, you're fond of, in Saudi Arabia, old uh, MBS, as they call him. Now, 
Mohammed Baby Salman. <laughs> so, <laughs> keeping with the toddler theme, so <laughs> sort of out of nowhere would appear, and this may relate to the politics of energy, the Middle East politics being a mess, but out of nowhere, he's been brought in out of the cold by the Biden administration. Joe Biden's uh, having a trip there. What are we to make of this? It sort of came randomly. Um, is it a question of Biden's back being against the wall on a domestic energy question or what else is it? Because obviously he's been frozen out and the, the, the entire regime has basically been persona non grata after killing uh, Kosoji, the uh, journalist, um, you know, luring him to the embassy and literally murdering him. Um, you know, so suddenly out of nowhere this has come. Why? What's your take on it? So there are there are a few things going on here at the same time. Last year, the White House came out and said Biden would never meet with Mohammed bin Salman because he's a murderer uh, and also he's not his counterpart, which is fair. His dad, King Salman, is very ill. But uh, but I think that's right. Deal with the king and show to the world that you're not going to deal with this crown prince. And it's a long shot, but you never know if the king ends up finding out that his son is so isolated that he appoints a new crown prince. It's possible. Um, I liked the strategy because it didn't cut Saudi Arabia off completely. They are they are um, a partner that the United States works with on a range of issues. And if you're trying to affect change on human rights or anything, then you can't completely not work with them. So I thought it was the right way to put the relationship on a better page on something that made sense and kind of set things right. But now it feels a little bit like we're walking backwards and it's for a few reasons. So first, the first rumors of a trip to Saudi Arabia that President Biden would take started in March and it was rumored. The White House said that wasn't even being considered. And since then, it has gone back and forth. So if you can't just if you don't know whether or not he's going, it's not your fault. It is because every week the news on this changes. And now the news uh, and I have some friends in government who I've spoke whom I've spoken with. And they're really parroting what's in the news now is that a trip to Saudi Arabia is not about oil, that it's about a, uh, a number of things. And listen, I was in I was on the inside of government for 12 years. I was spokesperson for the last four years of that. I completely remember crafting talking points like this. And they said, you know, this is about a possible normalization deal with uh, Israel and Egypt as well. It's about threats posed by Iran. It's about isolating Russia further and sure about oil too. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I can't believe that I'm getting the public talking points on this when I know that that's not the impetus for this trip. The, the, maybe there are a bunch of things going on. Of course, if he's going, they're going to talk about a range of issues. If there is, in fact, a normalization deal being struck, then that is amazing news. Great. There's nothing but good that can come from that. However, there, you know, I there's no way that the, the, the idea for this trip did not start with thinking about how to convince the Saudi government to increase its oil production as we were trying to push Russian oil off the market when every leader is going to face the backlash of their public with the rising costs at the pump and inflation in general. So and, and, and it goes hand in hand, by the way, with the U.S. trip to Venezuela. It's both were so, you know. But it's a problem. It's, it doesn't look great. My hope is that I my own belief is go to Saudi Arabia, but don't meet with Mohammed bin Salman. Don't give in on your values because that's just going to make it look worse. Insist on meeting with King Salman and try to get some other deliverables out of this trip. Maybe even like the release of political prisoners, for example. Yeah. 
I know I'm very high in the sky here. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's funny, right? I mean, the the politics of energy and energy supply has always been ugly. Um, and the war is really forcing some ugly choices here. And, uh, you know, I think you've laid out the good reasons for doing it. And I agree around the, you know, you meet with heads of state if you're a head of state. Um, and so that would, yeah, the be the, it, it's a logical argument, but it seems that, um, you know, the, the midterms are creeping up on us. And they're going to be decided by principally probably two things, the inflation number, you know, the, the gas pump price um, as a demonstration of that and uh, Joe Biden's approval rating. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so at the moment, you know, neither of those are in a good spot. Now, which gives me my clunky segue into US domestic politics. Man, you know, this place is always busy, but deary, deary me, there is a lot going on. Oh, um, you, don't think it's, you don't think things look good? You don't think it looks nice and normal and advancing and safe well, here? Well, let's start. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot to cover here, but we'll start with what happened uh, just now or in the last day, the Jan 6 hearings, um, you know, talking about a literal attempted coup uh, just over a year and a half ago, give or take, um, or just under a year and a half. So what are we to make of this, firstly? I mean, how do you feel about it? But do you think that, I suppose my questions are twofold. I think we agree that what happened is horrific and the implications um, for global democracy. I mean, I always just say, you know, the way I frame it, the United States is like team democracy's star play. It's the quarterback, right? And uh, if the quarterback goes down, uh, the rest of the team's in bad shape. And, you know, the quarterback's in not great shape right now. So what are we to make of the findings? But also how do you think it plays politically and will it matter? Because, for example, Fox News didn't even show it. I know. Uh, which is, you know, troubling. So over to you as the American. It's, you know, the thing that's a shame about an, a, a, a conservative outlet like Fox News not showing it is that the video, the one that you're talking about, which I highly recommend everybody to go see, you can see it. If I think if you Google January 6th instruction video, you'll you'll find it. But it's, it's it was tweeted out as well by the January 6th committee, their official web Twitter. And um it's a nine minute video and it makes you feel like you're there. And I always thought, obviously, when I saw the instruction unfolding on my television two years ago, I really was it last year. Oh, my God. A lot has happened since, um, you know, all of us were glued to the screen with our jaws dropped. But to watch that video was a whole other level. It makes you it, you feel the fear of the Capitol Police. You, you see what they're going through because the most of the footage is coming from them. And the, the part that makes me sad about Fox News not sharing it is that this was not some media branded uh, political hack video slapped together by some uh, agency with a political agenda. It's it's not like that. It's it is pasted together, but it's all raw footage from the Capitol Police of the video cameras they were wearing. And I will say, so that's a sh- it's a shame because those that is the audience that needs to see this. I will say, however, that I really don't think anything. Luckily can stand in the way of this committee. They are doing an amazing job. And people forget, Republicans forget, really. Um, conservative, by the way, far, I mean, more extreme right, far right Republicans and conservatives really forget that this is a bipartisan committee and that you have some Republicans on there who are leading the charge. So they, they like to accuse 
Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, that this is her thing or that this is her effort or work. And that that's that's ridiculous when you've had Republican Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, who served with President George W. Bush. She's leading the charge on this. And I think that's because I'm we're, I'm seeing something very unique here. And I'll end on this note, which is that, you know. For a while, a lot of Republicans felt that their party had been hijacked and that there was no future for it. And it's the Republican Party is a real crisis and it's in a real crisis right now. But you do have people like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and others who are actively trying to save it. And and maybe they're trying to push the far right out of the Republican Party, for example. And you're seeing it in the elections now with the primaries. If there are people running who are too far, too extreme. They are working to undermine them. You saw it happen with Madison Cawthorn, who is a buffoon. And he was pushed out in large part by Republicans. So it is a lofty goal, but I feel like you're looking at me spe- um, with speculation. <laughs> well, look, I, mean, I feel like I'm a, you know, you have to be an optimist. Look, I wring my hands about this all the time, right? So no, I mean, we're getting the weeds here, but of course, you know, Trump's had a mixed bag in terms of uh, his endorsements, but you're seeing people that are proper election deniers running for serious office. That's true. Uh, you know, like people like, you know, the, the candidate running in uh, uh, Philadelphia for, for governor is mental. Um, and, one, know, of, one of them was just arrested, by the way. Right. Oh, but yes. Is that Wisconsin? I think I thought it was Michigan. Oh, Michigan may have been anyway. Yeah. And then and then there was um, a, the guy running in North Carolina, Bub, is it? Yes. And he's mental. <laughs> um, but, you know, like it, it's really concerning. Right? And like Liz Cheney, right, good luck to her. She stuck her neck out. And look, you know, I'm, I'm not, everyone knows my politics. Liz Cheney is not my sort of person, but at least she's a patriot. Um, but let's be honest, she's going to get smashed in her primary. In, uh, in Wyoming, she's going to lose by 30 points. So these people are literally being purged um, that are prepared to say, uh, no, Donald, you lost the election um, fair and square. And so it's some real concerns there. I mean, we can go, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because we can literally do a five-hour show on this and like I can really, you know, get the black hat on and start being depressed about the state of this great country of yours. But switching to another topic. Which is equally depressing. Guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Valde, we had this horrific, horrific incident a few weeks ago. 19 school kids were uh, tragically uh, murdered by an insane 18 year old gunman with an AR 15, which is essentially a military grade uh, automatic weapon. You know, do you, I mean, parking, you know, I think you and I will share similar views about it, what's happened there. Are we to hold out any hope here? Uh, for any action. There's talk of a deal, but every day that seems to go past, the deal seems to get further and further away. Toomey just said the other day, you need half the Republican Senate, so 25 senators, hard to find. You need 10 to get to 60. Um, You know, I haven't got a lot of hope, given that Sandy Hook didn't seem to change anything. There was a big outcry, but we're seeing this sort of ebbing away again. Um, Are we we in any way hopeful about action here, or, uh, you know, is it going to be yet again obstruction and delay from the NRA types? I think while I do believe that things do feel different Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of people repeating that talking point, even Matthew McConaughey spoke from the White House press room and and said, you know, gave this real passion to plea and said, you know, things feel different now. 
And they do. Um, I will say that that people do have a short memory, though, because after every mass shooting, that's especially horrific. Um, I mean, all mass shootings are horrific, um, but particularly school ones when you have young children involved, they everybody reacts this way with with a lot of emotion and it takes over the front pages and, and the top of the news hour. And then uh, and then they do move on to something else. And so while I do tend to be very optimistic, as you know, and as you can see, I actually started the week optimistic about this and in one week have already gone back to reality. And that's because of what you're seeing on Capitol Hill. The House passed a bill that um, it well. So when I saw that it passed, I thought, oh, my God, great. Even if Senate, if the Senate passes a narrower bill. But then when I saw what was in the bill, I wasn't that impressed. It's it's the basics, background checks, red flag laws, things like that. Um, upping the age limit to purchase military grade weapons, not nothing like an assault weapons ban. Right. We're not even close to that. And then when I looked at who voted against it and how many, it was like something like 13 Republicans voted in favor of it. And that is it. Yeah. And that's what suddenly brought me back to reality, because the Senate, it's not just you're talking about a narrower bill. If if you only had 13 Republicans in the House vote in favor of a bill that's that weak, I don't know what you're going to get out of the Senate. Maybe. So that's I am hopeful only that they're going to do something to say that they finally did something. But they I guarantee you those Republicans that accept money from the National Rifle Association for their campaigns, that they're consulting with the NRA on a daily basis on what they're allowed to get. In well, a, I, I guarantee you. Well, the NRA strategy has been effective, I suppose. I mean, a lot of people say the NRA has never been weaker. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of problems in terms of investigations and their attempted bankruptcy, et cetera. But, you know, their strategy is no movement, right? So the, any advance they see it as, you know, kind of basically just zero sums, no, no advance. But I mean, like, you know, I just it's mental to me that an 18 year old can't buy a beer, but they can buy an AR-15. That is just insane. But uh, yeah, I digress. It is I digress because it's a very depressing topic. And as an Australian where, you know, we had a big shooting in the mid nineties and you know, we significantly changed our laws and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I remember it well, but Switching to another uplifting topic about U.S. politics. It's all just uh, beautiful stuff here at the moment. Um, abortion, laws, abortion laws appear to be up for an enormous um, upheaval. Uh, so, you know, for those that don't follow, there's a case Roe v. Wade from the 70s. 70s, right? Was it 60s? Yeah, 1973. Right, mm-hmm. um, Which allowed for the regulation um, of uh of permissible abortions nationally. Um, and that's now looking to be overturned by this you know, stacked Supreme Court where uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell basically stole appointments, um, certainly Merrick Garland. So, and then, of course, um, uh, yeah, so they were able to tilt the balance of the court to 6 3 in favor of the conservatives. And then there was a leak decision. Um, and that's due to come down uh, this month. This, no, is it, I know it's this summer. Is it this month? Well, they're talking about June, but I mean, who knows, right? I mean, the court, you know, will do what it does, but they generally want to get it done this session is my understanding of it. Question I have for you is two things. Let's assume the, the decision is as we saw it a month ago and it, it does do that. You know, how concerned are you about that as, a, as an American woman? But then secondly, will it matter? 
So the conventional wisdom at this point, I'm talking about the straight politics of it. I, you know, my view is, again, if you're against abortion, don't have it. It's not compulsory. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> on the assumption that it does get overturned, do you think that will, will we see, you know, uh, women and men marching in the streets and marching in the Capitol for their rights or is it going to just sort of be lost in the, in the mix and everyone's really going to vote on, you know, hip pocket issues like inflation? We've never actually seen it overturned. It's only ever been the prospect of it being overturned. You know, it's a long question, but it's two parts. How do you react to it? Does it matter politically? So your personal reaction, but then also the kind of, you know, your political assessment of it I'm interested in. So I unfortunately I feel like the United States is going through a phase. Hopefully it's just a phase, not a, not the beginning of a, of a long chaptered book, but um, a phase where you have so much that's that, that the population has been hit with that undermines our democracy that and you see this in a lot of dict, under dictatorships. I'm not saying that we are like a dictatorship at all, um, but you see this reaction in dictatorships where people become sometimes apathetic. And they, and the reason they become apathetic is because they start to feel as though their voice doesn't matter, their vote doesn't matter, and that they can't fight for change even if they try to fight for change. And I know, and, and we were talking about this before we went live, which is that I am, as a person, am not like that. I have an entire show that's based on changing the world for the better. And, um, and yet with, with these things that are coming out one after the next, the overturning Roe v. Wade, which is very likely to happen. It, it, the leaked, the leak says that the decision was made already. Um, and now with guns and, and just one thing after the next, I know myself, I'm starting to feel apathetic that I will definitely go vote. And I think that it will encourage more people to vote, especially a younger audience. And that's good news. Yeah, who are feeling potentially, you know, underwhelmed by Biden's presidency and saying, why should I vote? It may give them a reason, right? Yeah, I think exactly. I mean, I actually, you know, up up until at the beginning of the year, people were not so excited about Biden's presidency and what, you know, his results, which I think, uh, to be honest, I think a lot of it hasn't been well communicated also. Yeah, I think he's getting unfairly dealt with, but yeah, know, another show. That's another show. Everyone knows I'm a Joe Biden fan. Yes, we can talk about that forever. Um, it's uh, For anybody who wants a summary of what he did without a lie, he just went on Jimmy Kimmel and summed it up in like a minute about what he did, what did for the economy. And I'm like, well, that's about the first time I've heard that summed up that way. <laughs> so, um, but the, but the fact is that many people were were not excited. Um, certainly not Republicans, but even on the Democrat side, and it it felt as though we were going to go into the midterms, into the midterm elections, which are in November, with uh, a lot of people who just weren't going to vote, and that they weren't very motivated. These issues, the gun control issue, certainly the abortion one, which came out of left field for a lot of us, the, these are issues that. I do think we'll encourage more voting among a younger audience, but I do not see the type of protest or march that you had after Trump was elected. Mm. The women's march, for example, I hope, but even I follow the women's march and I don't see enough organization on their part. And I don't know why maybe they're distracted, but I'll, and I'll say one last thing, which is that my one, my one big, my biggest concern aside from how there are too many words, I can't even start with how angry and concerned I am about reversing Roe v. Wade, but I am also concerned about what that means for other rights. What does it mean for gay marriage? I mean, they left that very much open, arguably, in the way that the decision read essentially says, well, 
it, abortion is not contemplated. The word doesn't appear essentially in the in the Constitution or the Bill of mm-hmm. Rights or the Amendment. So therefore, the court made it up. Exactly. Well, the court made up gay marriage uh, in twenty was it thirteen, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and plenty of others. Right? I mean, you know, activist courts have sort of read broadly, and so this. Sort of, but then the Alito, as he'd written it, tried to get around this problem, and say, "Oh no, no, no!" But there's those are positive rights, and this is. Because it's abortion, it's dealing with the protection of life. It's somehow different. But, I mean, good luck. As if you wouldn't have think that once I open that door, people aren't going to come for a nibble at those other problems, right? Um, you know, one would think he's tried to strap it up, but I, it, it, too clever by half. Uh, as a as a former lawyer and a terrible student of the Supreme Court, I uh, that's my learned opinion. But, sorry, keep going. No, you could. I mean, you could make that argument for anything. And and that's what terrifies me is that their argument is, like you said, it's not in the Constitution. So we're going to leave this to the states to decide. And that is that's you're the Supreme Court. This is why you exist. So that you're supposed to say that that these are our rights. This is what's fundamentally granted um, and not to let the states go decide everything. Otherwise, we will land in a civil war. And so it right. it. it drives me crazy. And I really fundamentally believe if those justices want to live in 1787, which is when the Constitution was written, then go live in 1787 (laughs) and don't impose your views on the rest of us. By the way, the majority of people, including conservatives, the majority of people in this country are pro-choice. Yeah. And the majority are pro-gun control, by the way, as well. And it's fascinating, right? I mean, just to end on this point, you know, one thing that it confounded me for a very long time in Australia was climate politics, right? So climate change politics, you poll people, ebb and flow, but generally, especially bad for bushfire season, you get 60 70% of people say, I'm really or extremely concerned about climate change. And yet Labor would go to the election with action on climate change and get beaten. And you sit there and scratch your head and go, how is this? And, of course, you know, uh, the coalition uh, were very good at, splitting labour between its resource community and coal areas, and we don't have to go into all this because, you know, I've got PTSD. But nevertheless, out of nowhere, the election we just had, climate, there was an eruption about climate change and the Liberal Party was essentially decapitated in the inner parts, inner city parts of Australia where people wanted to see action on climate change. And, you know, when I look at these polling numbers, you know, 90% support for background checks. I mean, Nate Cohen wrote a really good piece that people should go read about the politics of guns and polling, which I think is pretty well made. But nevertheless, you've got majority support, strong majority support for things like uh, uh, protection of the right to an abortion, uh, so strong support even for an assault weapons ban, polls at 67%. And yet we get an election and people lose their seats because they advocated for some sensible action in any of those areas. You wonder at some point will there be a maybe – Maybe we're reaching that point where these lines finally get crossed, Roe gets overturned, there's no action on guns, and suddenly the GOP and, and, and these sort of extremists find themselves on the wrong side of these debates and the country says no more. Well, that's the hopeful argument. The bad argument and that kind of civil war argument that you're making is, you know, the United States, you know, it turns from being a democracy to more of an anocracy. It's a kind of technical term. You're nodding at me. I'm getting full marks from my social science professor Simon at uh, LSC, but basically a place where you vote, but that really doesn't, you know, Russia's an anocracy, right? There's elections, inverted commas, but, you know, Putin wins by 110% of the vote. Who knew? Um, And, uh, you know, people essentially get numb because it doesn't matter, right? And that's gradually where things are being dragged. But 
countries have got to find a way to get along, right? And if the 70, 80% of people that are sensible can get together and go, listen, we're not going to cop this anymore, then it can be resolved. Anyway, that's my long form trying to lift yourself out of this bloody depressing episode. Good God, if you're still with us, if you're still with us. I said I said no jokes. I didn't say buddy big funereal, you know. We'll like, bring you up, we promise. The world. Good grief. Oh, anyway, I actually, yeah, the world's in a bit of a bad shape right now. I was sitting there going, oh, man. Anyway, We're not alone, yes. Anyway, I was sitting there going, oh, the CCP are building bases basically in Australia is like on a Great Barrier Reef. Anyway, goodness, right. Levity, what is the John Dory this week that you are looking at? Well, you know, what have you got for us? What's the crazy bit of news out there that you want to know what's the John Dory, my friend? This is a funny one I thought was funny at least. So uh, I don't know if you all saw, but a protester this week, over the weekend, I believe, at the French Open, went in the middle during the semifinals match and tied herself to the tennis net with metal wires to protest against climate change. This comes a week after a guy who dressed himself up as an old woman in a wheelchair rolled up to the Mona Lisa and smeared cake on the bulletproof glass protecting this woman. And also, by the way, to protest climate change. And it got me thinking that these kids these days are not taught how to properly protest. And, you know, it's not exactly 1968 in uh, in Chicago, right, with Mayor Daley and the, uh, the the DNC convention and, you know, some really serious taking it to the streets. Right. You know, myself I, to tennis court. I mean, as a former PR person, I can understand the goal of having a video go viral and what that can do. Right. But you're protesting climate change. This is not an issue people don't know about. Your protest is not affecting any change whatsoever. It's not encouraging other people. It's not organizing people. It's not making any kind of demand. It is doing nothing. And it's, it's not being anything. annoying. It's like just people annoying. there to watch a tennis, yeah. right? It's like, man, like yeah. you just guys a lot of people <laughs> that probably your natural supporters, right? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. this was the thing. It just, so this kind of, these stunts, I just find frustrating because it actually undermines those doing real, the good thing. And it, it's annoying because I'm, I just keep thinking there are clear steps to protest. One, gather people, a lot of them. Two, go to a relevant event. Three, don't do dumb shit. And four, get coverage. And if you can't get coverage, then I don't know, take your top off. But this is not working. Right? There are other ways to do this properly and to, to, to affect change and to, to show that you're the masses. This is not it. I feel like the whole, all of us need a new le- lesson on protesting and encouraging encouragement to do it. But that's my John Dory. I really thought. It is yeah. interesting, isn't it? The TikTok generation basically just thinking the only all you need to do is it's sort of this sort of clicktivism viral. But, of course, if you go into that space, you might blow up for 30 minutes and then it's all passed anyway, right? So you've got to build a movement. It's got to be sustainable. Exactly. It's hard work, right? Unfortunately, uh, politics is not solved by virality or feeling things in the moment. It's a hard grind, right, of really working towards elections and, and, and lobbying and building coalitions across party, across city, across group. Um, anyway, Yep. So there you go, well kids. Said. Get better at your uh, – I'm sure they don't listen to my podcast, but if you are listening, get better at protesting, according to the guy. Now, mine um, is a, another friend of the show that we talk about a bit is Elon Musk. 
just continues to outdo himself as just one of the great wankers. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he's tried to buy uh, Twitter. He's overpaid for it. He can't get out of it. He's now saying he's making up all this nonsense about why, you know, because, you know, he basically wanted to pay with his Tesla shares as, as Twitter has lost value. So is Tesla, right? So he's kind of wedged and he has to pay a billion dollars um, if, uh, if he wants to break the deal. But even then he can still have it enforced on him, which is what Twitter have said they're going to do. Rightly so. Um, it's 54 billion. He's promised it's worth about 40 billion probably at the moment. But my critique of him is out of nowhere. He's now said, I want to send a million people to Mars. Elon, shut up. Like, seriously, <laughs> that is just garbage and proving yet again that we don't need billionaires making any decisions about how the world's run, what we need them to do, pay tax, vote, and have their say. Uh, just genuinely not interested in this bloke. Anyway, there's one. I fully agree with you. Well, wise words by Misha Zielinski. Oh, mate. John, <laughs> pay your taxes. Elon Musk. I don't want to hear any more John Dory's out of him. Um, but uh, oh. I don't. I think that that will continue for as long as we're around. <laughs> Regrettably, yes, we can't de-platform him if he owns it. Um, maybe you should go on. What's what, what's Trump's mind called? Truth Social or some nonsense? Oh, I don't know. Is that what it is? <laughs> he was tweeting on it. Last. Well, tweeting whatever it is you do on there. He he was going off his head. If you go check it out, he was going off his head about uh, Ivanka being basically. Oh, she's checked out. She's like you know she doesn't care. She, she doesn't know anything about election results. Nor do you, Donald. But uh, oh, I like some family drama, though. Yeah, I know, right? And then he was going off his head about Bill Barr and and others. Nevertheless, he was watching, despite despite saying he wouldn't be watching. He was clearly watching. Um, (laughs) You know. So (laughs) anyway, and that's the note we're going to leave this very very long episode. We've gone way over, but had to cover a lot. Um, So Hagar, good to see you. Get the plug in for your show. Thank you so much. It's oh my world, like oh my god. Uh, because the world news is consistently ridiculous. It's on YouTube, Oh My World with Hagar Shamali, and you can uh, subscribe on YouTube. You can go to the website, sign up for the email where you get a notification every time there's a new episode, or follow us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter and and TikTok, uh, Oh My World Show or Hagar Shamali, where I am. Get on there, follow her. You can just, it'll be in the show notes as well, but uh, do follow her Garway. You can still see her in her famous Bojo week because as I do believe, I don't believe neither Boris Johnson's... Oh, she's putting it on for me. Unfortunately, it's not a visual medium podcast. Uh, but, you know, neither the wig nor Boris Johnson's career are long for this world. So anyway, until next time, Hagar, thank you for joining us. Good to catch up. See you next time. Thanks for having me, Michelle. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, Diplomates fans. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Hagar. Uh, if you do like and want more of Hagar, which I know many of you do, do tune in uh, and subscribe to her show, The Oh My World Show. It's in the show notes. I've got a links there to it. Uh, it's a fantastic program. It gets you a very quick run around the world of all the things that are happening. And Hagar does it in a very entertaining fashion, but it really does uh, really inform as well. So check it out. Also, got a question here from Jody. Jody's asking about Ukraine. She says, uh, Misha, if you could make, wave your magic wand, what's the one thing you would do to help Ukrainians in uh, defending themselves against Putin's invasion? Well, if I, uh, <laughs> thank you for the question. Um, if I had a magic wand, I, I mean, I guess I would stop the war, right? But I mean, I, I guess that's not what you're asking me. So I think the thing we need to do, and we sort of touched on this a bit in the conversation, is that get the Ukrainians in the strongest position they can. So either to expel the Russians out of Ukraine entirely 
or at least fight uh, the Russians to a sufficient standstill uh, that Putin has to negotiate on Ukrainian terms uh, rather than Putin's terms. So I think that's probably the where I'd be looking. A stat that I think is important, as this war is now very, very highly localised in the Donbass region around Severodonetsk and other parts, uh, the attrition rate is just horrendous. You're seeing, you know, Zelensky said, 100 to 200 Ukrainian troops are dying every day. Some of the fighting is some of the most violent fighting we've seen in any war really since World War II. It's really extraordinary, some of the and horrific, the fighting going underway. But the thing that I think we really need to watch carefully is how much of this is now an artillery fight. Uh, the Ukrainians have been using Soviet-era technology, Warsaw Pact, and so they're actually running out of that munition because, you know, they're getting it from Poland and others, you know, stuff that's sitting around, but no one really produces it anymore. And so getting uh, the Ukrainians more modern kit, teaching them how to train on that because that actually takes time to train, but evening up the score there. So the Russians, we know this have a military advantage in terms of the amount of artillery that they have, but it's about a 15 to 1 advantage, right? So evening that up, giving the Ukrainians the ability to bombard Russian targets in Ukraine at medium and long range. A lot of people freak out and say, well, we don't want the Ukrainians using Western equipment to attack Russia in Russians in Russia. Well, if that is a concern, I think we can take the Ukrainians at their word that they're not going to do that. But secondly, uh, you know, there are ways to give them the appropriate equipment that's mid-range or or what have you, which is what the United States is now doing. But getting that in the field as quickly as possible without delays, evening up that 15 to 1 ratio to something like 1 to 1, probably be the number one thing. If I could wave my magic wand, uh, that's what I would do. Anyway, thanks for listening. Be back with a new episode, a deep dive episode with a big guest coming up. Otherwise, please continue to rate, subscribe to the show. Uh, it does help. Catch you next time. See you soon. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.